Uh, I love this text this morning. It's a familiar text. There's so much in it. There's so much in it. So let's, let's get to it. Luke 22, um, verse 39. And we're getting ever so closer to the cross through our study of Luke. And next week is, is Palm Sunday already. Um, we'll celebrate together a Good Friday and obviously Easter morning uh, the following week. And as we continue today through this text, we see Jesus moving from the upper room to um, the Mount of Olives. And there on the slopes of the Mount of Olives is a garden by the name of Gethsemane. And it's a place that Jesus went to often. And in this text, um, really, uh, we see surrounding everything that Jesus is doing is human failure. We see it all around. We see betrayal in this text today. We see the depravity of man present here in so many ways. We see the problem. We see the penalty of sin is all around as well in this, this hour of darkness. Um, and we also see that the desire of Jesus to be in communion with the Father and at the same time, the, the hatred of sin. Um, we'll see how we see that. Um, before we get going, I want us to, to that part, let us get to the beginning here, verse 39 through 40. We see the rhythm of prayer. Jesus had a rhythm to his life, right? What are some things that, that Jesus did often? He went to the synagogue, he would teach, uh, but one of the things that we see most often, he would get away and pray. He would commune with his father. And so as we see this text begin today, we see that's what he's doing. That's what he was doing. And so look at verse 39 as we get out of the gates. It says, he came out and he proceeded as was his custom, which was normal, which was a, a normal routine or a, a, a daily rhythm that he had to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, pray, so he's talking to his disciples, that you may not enter into temptation. And so here is Jesus and the disciples, and they've moved away from the upper room, and everything that Jesus has shared and communicated to them, and now they're in this secret place of prayer, which was so dear to Jesus, I, th I believe dear to the disciples as well, as they went there often. And they arrive here, and he shows concern for his disciples. He shows great compassion as he says, pray that you would not enter into temptation. Now, this temptation that Jesus is talking about is not some mere trial or some problem you're going to walk through. This is literally a, a real powerful temptation. And you remember what we heard last week, that the enemy is going to come and he's going to sift them like wheat. Remember that uh, sieve? Isn't that what we called it? Sieve? Sieve. Yeah, y'all are so better at words than I am. So sieve. And the wheat would go through, or, or the wheat and, and all the, the extra junk, right, would get through that. And so the wheat would stay on top, the good wheat. But going through that, right, were, were, uh, you had pieces of metal that would hold on to the wheat. And so uh, all the other stuff would fall through it. It wasn't good. But the wheat would stay up there, the good wheat. But remember, it had those sharp edges at the top of it. And so what is that for the disciples? Is, is, it's going to be pain. It's going to be hard. It's going to be persecution. It's going to be suffering. It may be death. But, but the enemy is going to sift them like wheat. 
And, and so Jesus is praying that they would not fall in temptation. So what does that mean? He's saying continually depend on God because he is the only one who's going to get you through this time without falling into temptation. So what does that mean from last week? That you would not fail in your faith. That you would not doubt. That you would not turn away from Jesus and desert him because it is about to get really hot. The pressure's coming. It's gonna get hard. And so the only way to avoid this type of temptation is through prayer, is through depending on God. Jesus taught this often, not just in this moment, but he told them, the disciples, in Matthew 6, 13, pray then in this way, Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what is prayer? Prayer is openly admitting that without Jesus, we can do nothing. It's an expression of faith in God's power. It's fueled by a desire for more of him and less of us. And so I pray the Lord would give us a desire to pray, just as we see Jesus doing this today, and the call for the disciples to do the same, that it would be a daily rhythm of our life as well. Because guess what? Temptation is lurking around every corner, every corner when we get up in the morning. The enemy is ready to pounce. pounce. He is a lion, right? Ready to steal, kill, and destroy, and to devour us so that we would fail in our faith, that we would fail in our marriages, that we would fail in every area of life, that we would denounce Christ, that we would literally take the name of Christ through the mud. That's what Satan wants us to do. And Jesus says, pray that you would not enter into the temptation of doing such. It's all around us. And prayer is the only way to battle. And so this was a rhythm. This was a a rhythm for Jesus, and he wanted it to be a rhythm for his disciples. And so look at verse 41 through 42. What's Jesus' desire? What's his heartbeat? And we see it in his prayer here. It says he withdrew from them, the disciples, about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus prays. Jesus continues to practice this rhythm. In Matthew 6, 10, you remember how Jesus modeled for us to pray? This is his prayer to the Father, his desire for us to pray to the Father this way. He said, pray in this way, your kingdom come, Father, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so here we see that. Jesus is praying, but he's praying full of honesty. He's praying full of humility, showing the depth of the quality of the relationship he has with the Father, and he desires something. What's his desire here? The first desire that he has is, God, will you cause this cup, right? Will you you remove it from me? Will you remove it from me? But what's his even greater desire in all this? God, your will be done. Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done done because why Jesus longs to do the father's will that's his desire that's his heartbeat so whether Jesus will do the father's will or not is not up for grabs here it's not the issue here but Jesus asking if there this cup can be removed or if there's another way besides this cup all right so what's the cup what's that what's this cup that he's 
wanting removed. All right, let's, let's let the Bible tell us. Okay, here's what the Bible says. I want us to look at four texts, three in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, to help us understand what is this cup? What does this cup mean? And so look at verse 75 through, or excuse me, Psalm 75, verse 8. It says, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. So you got a mental picture. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked the earth must drain and drink from its dregs. You got kind of a picture? And then Isaiah 51, 17, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. Okay? And then listen to Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of the wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And then lastly, the New Testament, Revelation 14, verse 10 says, he, and he in this text in Revelation, is those who do not worship God. They will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire, brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels, and the presence of the lamb. And that's a, a forever drinking of the cup that those will experience. And so what's the cup that Jesus is referring to? It's a metaphor of the wrath of God. That's what the cup is. And what's the wrath of God? The the wrath of God is the anger of the Lord, but this anger is righteous. Remember the scripture says, do do not be angry or do not sin in your anger. And so this anger that Jesus has is right. It's just. it's, It's deserved. It's the very wrath of God that's about to be poured on Jesus that he's saying, if you can remove this, if you desire to remove this, okay? So two weeks ago, we learned that Jesus is our substitute sacrifice, that he's dying our death, that he's saving us with his blood. Remember in the Passover meal? He's bringing us into a covenant relationship, the new covenant. The forgiveness of sins is what he's offering to us. And so through his blood, all this is so we can receive eternal life. So what do we see today? What, what must take place for that to happen is that he must bear the cup. He must drink from the dregs of the cup. So who deserves the cup according to those texts? Those who don't worship God, those who walk in evil ways, those who denounce him, those who turn away from him. And so what do we learn this week is Jesus is this, okay? He's our I'm going to use a big word, and then I'll use another big word, but then I'll define it. But Jesus is what Scripture calls our propitiation, okay, or our atonement. So what does that mean? Let me give you the definition. It means, propitiation means to turn away or turn aside wrath, okay, by taking away sin. And that's what Jesus becomes. He becomes our propitiation. He becomes our atonement, to turn away the wrath of God by taking on, by taking away sin. And, and, and so here's a, here's a few points here I want us to see with this, this in mind and what Jesus is praying. God, if it's your desire, take this cup away, but, but I'm going to do your will. 
not mine, but your will. So if your will is the cup, okay, I'm going to willingly go through that and drink it. Okay, but what's the first thing we see? First thing that we see that this points to is the character of God. You might say, well, how do we see this? Well, we see throughout Scripture that God is called holy, that he is called righteous, that he is a just God. And one thing that we continually see through Scripture is that sin must be punished. And so for God just to turn a blind eye to sin would not be right, would not be just. He would not be holy if he did that, okay? But he is just, he is holy, and so sin deserves judgment. It deserves wrath. And so the wrath of God must be satisfied. And, and so the wrath of God it rightfully should be poured out on sin, okay? So that's a right thing. And someone might say, well, this, this seems so unfair. This, I mean, this, this just doesn't seem right. No, it is right because God is holy. And he has nothing to do with sin. He turns away from it. So the second thing that we see from this points to the problem and the penalty of sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all of mankind, ever since the day of Adam. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has a holy standard, and we all fall short of that. We sin, that's what sin is, is disobeying God. It's falling short of the standard and the holiness of God. We fall short of that. And so as a result of that, we deserve something. Okay, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And just like if you go work at a job and you do a job, you deserve to be paid for that job. Well, because of our sin, we all deserve to be paid for that sin. That's a wage. And according to Paul, it's death. It's not just physical death. Well, that plays into it, right? But, but it's spiritual death. And that death is separation from God because God is holy and we are not. He is perfect and we're imperfect. He is without sin, and we're sinners. And so we see that problem. We see the penalty of sin in this text. The third thing that this points to, and this is great news, is it points to the mercy of God. It points to the mercy of God because Jesus going to be our propitiation, our atonement, to take on the wrath of God because that's what he's going to do. This cup, he's going to drink that on the cross. I mean, metaphorically, he's going to drink to the very dregs, the bottom, for us. And that's mercy. So we see mercy. And here's how we see it. We've seen it over the whole history of time where God would turn away his wrath upon sinners who deserve eternal death and separation from him. And if you remember, a few weeks ago, we saw the Passover, Right? And those who would take the blood and pour it over the doorposts and, and God would pass over their home because the blood was there, but yet those who did not have it, he would stricken with his wrath and take out the firstborn there in Egypt. A horrible scene, but right, because God is a just God. But yet it bids the question about what all the sin God has turned away from paying yet, rightfully, Right? I mean, we've seen the mercy of God. There's countless times we've seen him not give due yet, right? 
And so that's the patience, the long-suffering of God. And that's mercy, that the fact that we're all here today, it's, it's mercy that we're all not dead in our sin and separated from God. It is mercy. So that's why, I want you to hear this, that's why he sends his son. He sends his son as a propitiation and atonement for sinners to rescue them from the wrath of God so that he will be vindicated and just and turning aside his wrath upon us, which we deserve. And so he sends his son to pay for what all of us should pay. And so God is just and he's merciful. We see his mercy here this morning. It also points to the selfless and willing sacrifice of Jesus to turn away the wrath of God. If the cup of God's wrath being poured out on the cross is the will of the Father, what Jesus is saying here, I willingly obey and I will willingly lay down my life. It is the will of the Father and so he will do it. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So he becomes sin on the cross when he dies on the cross. And he is going to bear the full cup of God's wrath. Why? Did y'all hear why? So that all of us in this room, beginning with me, the unrighteous, could become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2, 34 says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now someone might say, how did he do that? Guys, I don't, I don't get all the ins and outs of this. I, I take it for face value. I take it for what it's saying here. All I know is that Jesus, in this moment, when he's gonna go to the cross, the next day, this is Thursday on Friday, it tells me that he bore every sin of mine, past, present, and future sin that I'm going to make. He is bearing it on his body as that lamb. And he is going to pay for it. Guys, I don't know about you, but where else do we see that kind of love? the righteous, willing to become unrighteous in this moment so that we can become righteous. Wow. So he's gonna drink the cup because it's the Father's will. And so you think about what Jesus is dealing with here. It's, it's physical. We're gonna see his agony in a second, the depths of his agony. It's, it's definitely physical. I mean, he's going to bear this. He's going to suffer but it's also spiritual because he is gonna cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because what does sin do? What does it do? It separates us from the Father. So in this moment on the cross, he is gonna be separated from communion with the Father. Remember what I said earlier, there is nothing more better that he loves than communion with the Father. 
And there is nothing more he hates than sin. And in this moment, he is going to face both when he goes to the cross. And so it makes me step back and think, okay, how much do I love the communion with the Father? What does that mean to me? And how much do I hate sin? Because we see in this moment how Jesus loves the one more than anything and he hates the other more than anything. And so what about me? He models that to us. And he is willing to drink the cup so that we can have communion with the Father forever and that the very thing he hates, sin, he'll deal with it for us so that we, instead of being lovers of sin, would turn to haters of sin too and not live for the thing he died for. That's what he does. He also models here prayer. And one of the themes we talked about that comes out of this text. And so when we face adversity, when we face stress times like this that he's facing, he's up against, how do you and I face them? You see, the only way we can face the day-to-day struggles and temptations of this life and live out the Father's will, which Jesus' desire is for us, is in fervent prayer. It's the only way. And so I think this, this text bids us to look at this and say, okay, how did Jesus face this most dire moment in his life? And I think it bids us to say, okay, when I go through trials, when I go through times when I cannot do anything, which daily we go through them, I've got to lay over those issues of life, the attitude and the prayer of Jesus over those troubles and to depend on the Father just as he did. And that's what he's calling his disciples to do as well. But look what happens next in verse 43 and 44, an interesting text here. It says, now an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus, strengthening him and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So what is Jesus gonna get here? He's gonna get strength from heaven. In Matthew, uh, it tells us that Peter and the two sons of Zebedee were taken by Jesus with him in this moment as well at some point, right? Luke doesn't mention that, but Matthew does. And so Jesus gained strength from others in this moment as well. And so community is huge. And having people praying for us and surrounding us to encourage us and pray for us is gigantic. I mean, it's vital. But what we see right here too is ultimately we need heaven to strengthen us. And that's what happens here is this angel comes during this great conflict and stands with Jesus as he faces this calling of going to the cross. And so he's not spared the trial. No, he's given the strength to face it. That's a beautiful scene, right? It reminds me of his baptism. It's a confirming, affirming action here from heaven to say, listen, Jesus, heaven stands with you as you follow God's will. And so listen to the agony he has. It says, being in agony, he was praying fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So what do we see here? We see the weight of the world on Jesus. Arrest is coming, betrayal, suffering, death on the cross, the cup is gonna be on him. And he was in agony. Agony is being overwhelmed with great emotion. Maybe we've been there before, right? 
great agony, maybe the loss of a loved one, maybe the news that shook us and rattled us about some health scare or, or a health reality that we had to go through, or agony in the loss of a loved one or a relationship with conflict and we agonize over it. I mean, you can fill in the blank of the agony that maybe you faced before. And, and so I love this text because Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, reminds us that he sympathizes with us. In every way, he was tempted, tempted just like you and I. And so we see that the humanity of Jesus here, the stress weighing on him, so much so that he became, his sweat became like drops of blood, literally thick, clotted blood is the idea. It reminds me, of over a decade ago, when we were at our old location, I was back in my office one day, and I was, I was actually about to leave. And um, At that time, I had a secretary, and, and she came back, and she said, hey, listen, Jerry, I know you're about to take off, but there's a gentleman out here who's in a lot of distress, and he, he liked to talk to a pastor. I'm like, okay. And so I remember picking up the phone to call my wife because it was getting close to usually the time that I would leave. So I just said, hey, listen, I've got somebody that's, that's coming back to see me. And so um, this guy came back, and as soon as he walked in, I could just see just the stress weighing on this young man. He was a younger guy, probably in his 20s. And we sat there and talked to my office for a long time. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, he had just shared voice shaking, trembling knees and hands, and just all that he was going through, just the stress, and he was agonizing. And I'll never forget this. It has stuck out, and, and every time I read this text, I think about it, is all of a sudden, he starts crying tears of blood just down his face, just streaming, and I thought, wow. And he looked at me and he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you were just, your, your tears are blood. And I said, let me get up and get, get some Kleenex for you. So I went up and got some Kleenex and he wiped the tears of blood off. And he, it shook him, it shook him. And I said, man, I, I can see that you are overwhelmed and with great emotion and, and agony. And I remember just spending a lot of time with that guy that day and praying for him. And, and, and I, I, I do believe he walked out with peace. I've never talked to him since again. I don't know if he ever came to a service or whatever. But I just remember that. I remember what we see here is, is the agony that sometimes is a reality for us. And it may not be seen through drops of blood, whether it's sweat or whether it's tears. But sometimes we go through agony. We go through tough times. We go through these overwhelming times of great emotion. And Jesus is because he is being pressed, right? Remember how bad Satan pressed him in Matthew 4? Well, this is a full court press right here. Satan is coming full force, right? And so what we see right here is Jesus prays fervently. That idea of fervently here is, means he's going to work. He is going to to work, and that's what prayer is. Prayer is work. It is the real work of ministry. And I would say this, it is the real work of sustaining life in Christ. It's work. Prayer's the engine 
of a follower of Christ. And so when we face painful, hard, agonizing situations, we've got to remember that Jesus gets it. Oh, he gets it. He gets it, and he's right there with us. And so prayer is vital as we need strength from heaven, and it is there for the asking. It is. And look what happens. It's a battle, though, right? It's a battle to pray, and that's what we see, verse 45 through 46. When he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping from sorrow, from grief, and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus raised up from prayer, and he's concerned, though. He's concerned for the disciples. These disciples, we've seen their noble desires. We've seen their willing spirit, but we also see their physical weakness. And here we see that, that their physical weakness overcomes them. It says right here that they were overcome with sorrow, right? So the flesh It's an ongoing struggle that we battle against daily in Christian discipleship. And it's a battle to pray, spiritually and, I think, believe physically as well. And why is it here? They're they're worn out by grief. The reality of his death and everything that Jesus has talked about is starting to weigh on them. And I don't know if they saw the sweats of Drops of blood. I don't know if they saw that physically. I don't know what that looked like to them. But the reality of what was going on started to weigh on them so much so that they fall asleep. Right? And I think Jesus understands, right? He understands. I mean, he he understands. He's going through it too. And so the only way the disciples, though, can face what they're about to face and what they're going through, Jesus reminds them, is through prayer through prayer, through prayer. Because it's going to get hard, and they're going to be tempted to walk away, just like one of them did. And so look at verse 47 and 48. We see the betrayal of Judas. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. The one called Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Right? What's a kiss? Especially back then was a, was a form of welcome, was a form of greeting. Remember Jesus said, greet one another with a holy what? Kiss, right? Well, this is a form of welcoming. This is a form of friendship and fellowship. And so Judas does this in despise and betrayal of Jesus. So we see what was the intentions of, of Judas in action here. And so they're sad. Our heart breaks for Judas because he has given in to the temptation. He's given in to the sifting of the wheat. He is falling through, and there's no real faith, no real faith. But what we see in this moment is Jesus is in control. This is God's plan in action. And part of the weight that Jesus has been feeling, he knows that this is, this is what he must walk through. And so The disciples, though, are confused, but Jesus is under control. And so look at verse 49 through 41. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? See, remember the daggers, the two they have at the table from last week? Um, They're going to use them, all right? And listen to what happens. One of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. How many of you guys love Scripture? I mean, you think that Scripture is not fun? 
to read. This is action-packed, guys, right? How often are people losing ears? Welcome to Christianity, guys. People are losing ears. Thousands of pigs are running off mountains. You can't get this anywhere else. Nowhere else. Sweat of blood. Guys, this is, this is great. All right. But Jesus answered and said, stop. No more of this. Okay? He touched his ear and he healed him. This is amazing here. Many believe this is Peter going to work here with the sword. Um, But what do they have in mind here? What we see is their lack of understanding. These guys are so confused, right? They're overwhelmed with grief. What what do you do in a situation like this? You fight, right? Right, guys? The adrenaline starts pumping. I got to defend. I got to go at it. I got to go to battle. And that's what they, they're thinking. I mean, Judas of Galilee in 4 BC rose up a revolt on Rome. And Rome, as a result, put thousands and thousands of crosses with men who revolted, insurrectionists, that they would put up on these crosses who were threats to the government. And they would kill all of them on a cross. That's how they would perform the death penalty back then. But it was a display. And so these, these disciples... That's what's going through their head. That's what they think, right? Because the kingdom of God is coming to earth and and we've got to fight because Jesus is going to be the king of that. We're not going to let him die, so we're going to cut a guy's ear off, right? I mean, so that's, that's their mentality. They're very confused. But yet, what seems very passive of Jesus here is actually... Very strong. Because what Jesus does here is he does not resist the will of God. And that's what true strength is. Jesus, in all humility, shows here that I'm not going to fight, but I'm going to accept God's will and walk through and not revolt. So this is not a revolt (laughs) or anything that the disciples are thinking. This is God's will. So the question is not what God could do. I mean, he could stop this. Everything could stop. Jesus knows that. But the question is, what is God's will? And it's this. This is the way. It's the way of the cup. The disciples don't get it. They will get it. When the Holy Spirit comes, they will get it at Pentecost. The very one who takes the ear off will be the very one standing to say, hey, listen, the Savior who you put to death, right, died for your sins by the predetermined plan and will of God. And that's what we see happening here. And lastly, Jesus says in 52 through 53, He says to the chief priests and the officers of the temple, after he had fixed the ear, who had come up against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber, he asked? While I was with you daily in the temple, did you not lay hands on me then? Right? Why didn't you come do that publicly? I was with you all the time. 
in the temple. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Wow. This is the Lord's will. This is God's will. Scripture testifies back in Zechariah 13.7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, capital A, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And that's going to happen. But I love what Jesus says here. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Because what Jesus is saying is the time in the temple and stuff like that, the time wasn't ready. But I love what Jesus says right here. He's giving them authority. And he's submitting here. But not ultimately to them, but to God. And he grants them. You, you just see what I'm saying? He says, okay, I'm going to grant this over. This hour and power of darkness, it's yours. It's a weighty statement. And so they take advantage of him in this time, in this secret place of prayer, and they seize him. And the power of darkness has its turn. But what we see here is that this is God's plan for Jesus to go through this hour, this power of darkness. He willingly is going to take the cup. And when you think about that cup real quick, about the wrath of God and everything that Jesus is going to go through, you remember Jesus, we see his humanity here. But also think about this. We also see his divinity. And how do we see it? Well, the fact in his human level that he agonizes over the cup so much like he does over the wrath of God is because he's divine. (laughs) Because he is fully aware of wrath. He's fully aware, because he is God, of the divine wrath of God. So he fully understands what that means. And that's why he agonizes humanly so much. It's because he's about to face it. And so, why does he face it ultimately? I think there's two reasons real quick as we close. It's simply this. He faces it for the glory of God, number one. Jesus dies and willingly goes to the cross. First and foremost, on his mind, is the glory of God. Is the glory of God. That's not up for debate. The second reason he goes, and this is connected to the glory of God, because what's the glory of God? It's the character of God. And so he goes for the justice of God, but he also goes for the mercy of God, and that's where you and I come in. As he goes and he takes upon the wrath of God for you and for me, so that what we deserve, he will bear it for us. And guys, that's grace, and that's mercy. That's a love like no other. And so this morning, as Jesus bore your sin, have you acknowledged that? Have you trusted in him as your savior, as your sin bearer? Or are you trusting in your own works? Are you trusting in just leaving things up to chance? Are you... Trusting in something else, someone else, to be your sin bearer. 
Guys, reality, if Jesus is not our sin bearer, you will be. <laughs> and the enemy wants to despise you and make you a fool in thinking that that's not true. That's his great trickery. But here's the deal. Either Jesus is your sin bearer or you are. And so what that means is either Jesus bears the weight of your eternal death on the cross 2,000 years ago, or you bear the weight of your eternal death for eternity. Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so I ask you this morning, have you believed in that? Have you believed in this great, beautiful story that Jesus went and died for you, bore your sin, and they took your sin to the grave, and he paid for it in his death, and on the third day he rose again, and he overcame the power of sin and death and the enemy. And if you believe that and surrender your life to him as Lord and King, that becomes your story. And he drinks the cup for you. What a gift. Let us pray this morning. And, and as we pray, and John comes up, and we're going to celebrate communion and, what, and remember what Jesus did for us by drinking from the cup and taking of the bread this morning. But as we come this morning, you, you may be here. And, and maybe the weight of the gospel and what it addresses has never really soaked in before. And maybe you're here and you're like, man, no, if I died today, I'd bear the penalty of my sin. And guys, if that's a fact, <laughs> you should not leave this room today without believing and surrendering in Jesus. I mean, that's just the simple truth. So the question is, are you bearing the weight of your sin, the penalty of it right now, or is Jesus? And if you are, I pray that by his doing, that he would lead you in this moment to believe and trust in him as your sin bearer. And so today, we're going to have a couple of elders, an elder and his wife over here. I believe Greg, is Greg in here? I don't see Greg. Kevin, if you'll do that. Lilia. And there's others here too. And if you're here today and you're like, you know what? I want Jesus to bear my sin. If that's where you're at, maybe that's the way you want to confess it and profess it today. Come and find someone. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you and meet with you and talk to you a little bit more and, and walk with you through that decision. It's huge, huge. There's no greater decision than that. So they're going to go over there. And if there's others, you want to pray with them, it'd be great. Others will be around as well. Uh, it's a loving church. And they, they get the gospel and they'd love to, just communicate that grace to you today and, and, and encourage you in that decision. So let me pray.